We're finishing up the first part of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We are looking at Galatians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 21 through 31, where Paul is talking about two covenants. Verse 1. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now that's a great question, but let me start this morning with my question. My question is, what kind of a person thinks more law is a good thing? Now, this is my first thing on the back of the bulletin. The law, when it operates correctly, gives a person exactly what he deserves. And who wants to get exactly what you deserve from a God who knows all of your secrets? I don't. So I ask the question, who thinks more law is a good thing? And I can think of three kinds of people. Self-righteous people. People who think that they're above the law, and those who think that somehow the law grades on a curve. In other words, people who don't know the lawgiver, the God of the Bible. God Jehovah, the one who gave Moses the law. They don't understand, our next thing on the bulletin, that God is the standard of good. He's the criterion of of righteousness, of whether you've kept the law or not. Now, there's different levels of good, different meanings of good in the English language. For instance, you might have a good dog. How do you know if you've got a good dog? Well, he doesn't pee on the carpet. All right, what about a good man? Well, let's get a little higher standard for that, okay? Okay. Well, maybe he remembers his mother on Mother's Day. But a good God, he is righteous and holy. Now, Pastor Jared illustrated this last week, that no one measures up to God's standard of good, of holiness. But I start thinking, are we adults somehow like small children with roller coasters, that we aren't safe, that It's not safe to be with God by ourselves. Is God dangerous? I got to thinking, and I guess I think it is the same. It isn't safe to approach Jehovah God alone or unprotected. He makes these rides look like child's play, like a preschool playground. The God that is good, he is righteous and holy. He is so holy that to stand before him alone would not be safe. God's holiness, the Bible says, is a consuming fire. That's why John tells us in his gospel that no one has seen God at any time. Usually in the Old Testament, God showed up speaking as an angel. An angel came. Sometimes Christ came called a theophany, where in his pre-incarnate way he came. But when God gave the the law to Moses, God the Father, God Jehovah, he showed up. And it goes like this, Exodus 33, 19. I will make all my goodness, see his goodness, pass before you. But you cannot see my face, 
for no man shall see me and live. While my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and you will cover, I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. You see, God doesn't even trust Moses to cover his own eyes. That's how dangerous this situation is. But I start thinking, well, what would happen, I mean, if Moses peaked? He'd be toast. Burnt toast. I know about burnt toast. That was my job as a child. I scraped the toast every morning. My mom had me scrape the toast for breakfast. When they asked at school, how do you help? My mom has me scrape the toast. Well, God's goodness, his holiness is a consuming fire. And I tried to picture that. How can we picture God as a consuming fire? We find this phrase three times in Hebrews, in Exodus, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy. But let's look at the Hebrews in the living New Testament. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe, for our God is a consuming, devouring fire. When I think of an unsafe fire or consuming, um, because my dad was a welder by trade, I think of the ark of the welder. I was constantly warned. Do not keep looking at the flame. It will hurt your eyes. But compared to God's omnipotence, we must instead think of the sun or the atomic bomb. Now, it's not safe to stare at the sun just because of what the sun is, a consuming fire. The atomic bomb might help us to recognize that not only we have the consuming fire of God's nature, his holiness, but the attribute that God is all-powerful, his omnipotence. Paul tells us that Jesus not only created all things, but that it is his power that holds all things together in this creation. Every physical atom throughout all of our universe is being held together by Jesus. He's the glue. We see this in Colossians chapter 1. Tells us everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he held all creation together. Well, I forgot what I said on slides on that other slide. When an atomic bomb is detonated, the energy and heat, the consuming fire it releases, it's splitting just one tiny, minuscule, microscopic atom. One. But God holds the whole universe together. The second thing about that these Judaizers, these legalizers don't understand about God, and this is our next thing in the bulletin, is that God is no respecter of persons. All mankind will be judged equally 
and rightly, justly. No one is above the law. Not one is let off the hook. They also understand, it's in your bulletin, that God's standard of good is perfection. There's no grading curve with God. Just because you're a little bit better, you're not any higher on the curve with God. See, all of these people have one basic problem. All of us law people have one basic problem. Our God is too small. They're like the gods of, of the Romans and the, and the Greeks. Their gods were glorified humans, still selfish and devious and fickle. So to even begin to understand who the lawgiver, the God of the Bible is, we must recognize at least three of his attributes. God is holiness and perfection. God is justice and righteousness. And God is love and mercy. Now, God doesn't have these attributes. He is these attributes. He is a loving, merciful God, a holy, consuming fire that must act with justice, righteousness, and integrity. Well, it was pretty bleak until I figured out that there is an answer for God to be holy, just, and loving at the same time. You all know what that is, don't you? The answer is grace, the good news, the gift of the gospel of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's perfect gift of his son Jesus, whose holy, perfect life on this earth fulfills or fulfilled and can, it fulfills the law. And his horrific death provides justice for the most horrid of our sins. Someone said, well, why couldn't Jesus have just died in his sleep? Because he died for your sin and my sin. And our sins are evil and wicked. So, his death provided justice. His resurrection gave proof of his deity that he had the right to represent all of mankind throughout all of history. His death is that valuable, worthy, worthy as the lamb. We come to our next statement. God provided a gift for all mankind that satisfies heaven's yardstick. In Christ, we all measure up. Now, God is a God of laws, uh, like the laws of physics, the law of gravity, laws of, of morality, that he, like he put into our conscience. Treat your neighbor like you want to be treated. A good conscience will tell us that. 
There are spiritual laws. The wages of sin is death. Now, as you look back into history, there's one important historical person who loves the law because he doesn't think that it applies to him. He had all three of these traits. He was self-righteous. He felt he was above the law. And he thought that life is graded on a curve, that he could just be good enough. His name was Lucifer. And his God was too small because of his pride. Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan, loves the law. Satan used the law and his wily questions to deceive Eve in the garden. And all of mankind came under the penalty of the law. Oh, yeah. Good old Adam. I've always wondered, why did Adam follow along? Well, he's like the rest of us. He wanted to belong. And he wanted to have fellowship on earth more than he wanted to have fellowship with God. So Satan used these questions. Did God really say? Satan also used and twisted the law to crucify Christ. He loves the law. But he's blind to the existence of God's deeper law. If you don't know about God's deeper law, you should read the Chronicles of Narnia. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. As a youth pastor, I, I taught a lot of Wednesday nights through the Chronicles of Narnia. And the lion said to the children, oh, the witch didn't know the deeper law. She knew that I had to die for the sin of your brother. Well, the deeper law, the greater law, Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He calls it wisdom. The wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, I love this part, even though he made it for our ultimate glory, I'm adding a word, even before the world began. Nothing surprises God. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. Satan and his minions are blind to this mystery. And isn't it so totally ironic that in crucifying Christ, Satan's horde made it possible for Jesus to unleash this deeper truth, this greater law, the law that we call God's grace. Amazing grace. Lucifer's God was too small. Pride blinded him and us many times, at how insignificant he was, or you and I are, and how significant others can be, especially how insignificant God is. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and the spell was broken. Captive hearts were set free. Death was swallowed up. The power of the law was defeated. The lion of Judah roared from an empty tomb. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go on to verse 22. Whew, finally got there. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Paul continues to use Abraham as an example. Only this time, instead of using, uh, looking at Abraham's marvelous faith, Paul points out the results of Abraham's lack of faith. Paul builds an allegory from Scripture illustrating the difference between being born into slavery and being born into the promise of liberty by faith in Christ. He talks about two sons and their mothers. Finishing verse 22, the one son by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. You know the story. It all begins back in Genesis chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Then Abram and his brother Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, then the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, but Sarai was barren. She had no child. In this culture, Sarah is already a disgraced woman. This is at the time when Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65. They were that old when the first promise was given to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. Well, did you notice that Abraham and Sarah are called Abram and Sarai? Well, their covenant names, Abraham and Sarah, that we know them by, they haven't been given to them yet. Their names are changed before the son is born, but not until Abraham is 99 years old. The story continues in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, your seed. I've already told you you're going to be a father of a great nation, but I want you to know that it will be your descendants from your seed that I will give this land that I'm going to give you. And there, Abraham, Abram, Abraham built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Well, Sarah must have put two and two together, and she assumes that her barren life is over. She's going to be a mother at last. Time passes, year after year after year after year after year. That's about five years that just crawled by. We come to Genesis chapter 15, but Abram said, Lord God, what, what will you give me? See, and I go, childless, you've given me no offspring. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then God brought him outside and he said, look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he, 
Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. This is what Pastor Lee was talking about when God signed the covenant. He had Abraham split up some animals and put them in two rows, and God walked through like a torch between the two animals. He signed the covenant right there himself. Well, so far, so good. In fact, I think there's a little pillow talk later that night. And Abraham tells Sarah of God's renewed promise. And her hope is rekindled. She's excited. But then again, year after year after year, after year, well, at least four, maybe five years. That's nine or ten total years of disappointment and discouragement from the time the promise was first given. In desperation, in her darkest days of barrenness, Sarah makes the wrong decision. It's a socially accepted decision because the ancients had a shortcut around the family planning. You could recruit a surrogate mom. So she finally says to Abraham, and this is our next fill-in, but this is where you and I need to stop and learn a lesson. Don't get in God's way ever. Let God do his work, his way, in his timing. Learn to wait on God. God doesn't need our help. Well, I was talking to someone earlier and mentioned this to them, and I, it was, I was reminded to say, that doesn't mean if you're asking God for things, you don't sit by the telephone and wait for it to ring. You might make a phone call. But anything you do, you do to glorify God. You do under his direction, his way, a loving, kind honest way. It seems that Sarah has lost sight of God's true promise because in Genesis 16 verses 1 and 2, it says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, was, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, Go into my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. How do you think that's going to work out? You see, Sarah's age is making it feel impossible that Abraham's promised son would come from her to be her child. But once Hagar's pregnancy even begins to show, she starts constantly needling Sarah with agitating superior looks, maybe while she rubs her tummy a little bit, and ugly, snide, whispered remarks. Sarah is turning 75, and she's thinking, how could God do this to me? Now, Ishmael is, has been born. 
But actually, I think Sarah might have said, how could God and Abraham do this to me? It's not a happy home, folks. After 25 years goes by since the first promise, God repeats the promise for the third and last time. Sarah's anxious, and it says she is in the tent eavesdropping, listening, and it says that she laughs out loud. I'm not sure how she's laughing. Have you ever laughed angrily? I don't know. But amazingly, at the age of 90, right after this laughter, Sarah is pregnant and ends up giving birth to a son. She names him Isaac, which, by the way, means what? Laughter. Isn't that interesting? Verse 23, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Ishmael, born according to the flesh. Remember, flesh is me, my efforts, my ingenuity, my ability, just like our efforts under legalism. And he of the free woman through promise. Isaac was the miracle baby. He was God's work from start to finish, like our salvation. Verse 24, which things are symbolic, for these two women are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is the current Jerusalem, and is in bondage with her children. The covenant from Mount Sinai is the Mosaic Law. We find it in the book of Exodus where God gives Moses the law consisting of moral laws, ceremonial laws, and at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. This covenant is conditional, and it requires obedience to receive any blessings from God. Disobedience? it says, is followed by curses and God's judgment. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. That's our next point in the bulletin. The Jerusalem above is heaven. This is where the power originated that opened Sarah's womb. It's also the source of our salvation. It is the new covenant described last week by Pastor Jared, revealed by God through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. This is the promise to Israel. And guess what? This is exactly the promise to you and I. The new covenant promised a coming day to be revealed through Jesus. 
This coming day will bring forgiveness of our sins, a renewal of our heart. In Christ I am a new creation and an intimate relationship and knowledge with God and of God. You see, on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup and he declares that his death would be the unveiling of this new covenant. Matthew 26, verse 27. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. The new covenant finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the cross. It's through him that we receive forgiveness of our sins, that we're made to, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who motivates and empowers us to seek after the things of God. But it's conditional only by our belief. As Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. You see, we only have to open the door. The only work we have to do to be saved is to respond with belief. We see in John chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus is going to talk about how much work you and I need to do. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, well, you want to work for God? Well, here's the work of God, that you believe in him. Whom he sent. Now, the new covenant is based on faith in the shed blood of Christ to take away sin, not on repeated sacrifices or work or activity <clears throat> or any other kind of work. Now, we come to an interesting quote of prophecy. It's a quote from Isaiah 54.1. And I read all kinds of people's ideas about this. Uh, Let's read it. Verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Well, I read what Pastor Sandy has to say about this. He's one of our pastor friends. He says this, it speaks of two covenants of two women. It predicts that a covenant that starts out barren will produce many more children than the covenant that claims to be fertile, which means in the end, Jerusalem above, or the new covenant, will produce many more offspring for God than Jerusalem below, which is the law. He says, grace will always prove more fruitful than law. Pretty simple. I like that. Verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. 
Paul sums this analogy up in one sentence. We are all, those of us who are believers, we are all born by promise into God's family, period. Just as Isaac was, was a child of God's miraculous promise, every one of you who believe is also a miracle baby. Verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. People of the law will always persecute people of faith. If we try to tell people, well, the Bible says, they say, that's hate speech. You can't tell me I'm wrong. Abraham's venture in the flesh resulted in friction at home. Jealousy from Sarah, Hagar's pride, and Ishmael's mocking. And Paul is connecting Ishmael's mocking of Isaac with the Judaizers' persecution of the Galatian Christians, and the mocking continues. Genesis chapter 21, verse 8 and 9 Tell us about this. When Isaac grew up and he was about to be weaned, about two years old, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, he's about 14 or 15, the son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, making fun of her son Isaac. Well, if you and I had been there, we might not have thought much about a teenage boy teasing his baby brother. But Sarah knew. And Paul agrees. He says Ishmael persecuted him. <clears throat> well, that was the, the moment <clears throat> that Sarah demanded Abraham to cast out Sagar, Hagar and Ishmael from her family. Paul quotes Genesis 21 and Sarah's ultimatum in verse 30. Nevertheless, Paul says, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. These two women will never cease to be in conflict. It's inevitable. They're incompatible. The law and grace can't coexist. It's one or the other. It's either grace or law, faith or works, spirit or flesh, or as my brother said, trust or toil. Verse 31. So then, brethren, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We must be like Abraham and Sarah and get rid of the flesh the bondwoman. Well, this takes us to our next statement in the bulletin. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis once explained, he wrote the Narnians, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Boy, that is so true. There's no neutral ground in my life. Every square inch of me, every split second that I have 
is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. It's a war. We must beware of ever inviting Hagar and Ishmael back into the family. There's no mixture of law and grace. I can sum this up with three thoughts. Uh, They're not mine. You'll see that they're from uh, Dr. Richards. The law is inferior. It takes the believer, it it brings the believer discontent. It robs him of his joy. It brings the believer bondage. It robs us of our freedom. And the believer becomes powerless It drains us of faith by turning our attention to useless self-effort. The liberty into which believers are called is not a liberty that leads to licenses the Judaizers would, would charge, but rather a liberty that leads to mature responsibility and holiness empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is the theme that dominates the last two chapters of the epistle. Paul starts chapter 5 with a verse that summarizes the first four chapters. It's a transition to what follows. Many, many scholars call this verse, chapter 5, verse 1, the key verse of the entire epistle. The gospel of grace is our eternal position And it empowers us to turn away from anything that smacks of legalism and instead rest in Christ's triumphant work as we live by the power of the Spirit. So I want to just end this morning with the first verse. I was hoping to get to all six, but guess what? Time went on and on and on. Before Paul launches into the solution of the law versus grace, that's what five and six are going to be. He gives us a stern warning and tells us where we must put our focus and our energy. Verse one, stand therefore, stand fast therefore in the liberty in which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Stand fast means we're to be deliberately seeking closeness and intimacy with the Lord. Paul is challenging us, uh, worship team, come on up, in this verse to stand fast, to consciously, intentionally take a stand and plant your feet. And this comes to our last fill-in, My freedom is only effective when I'm focusing on Jesus in worship and praise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the history of the Old Testament that illustrates to us how true the truth of your word is as it's lived out in its good and bad examples. We wish it could only be good, but we need to understand that your power works in our lives when we're sinful. 
And so, Lord, we give ourselves back to you. Every moment we seek your face, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.